0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast which takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week we're taking a look at wearable healthcare. Will your watch prevent you having a heart attack? And will all the extra knowledge we get from these devices make it more or less likely that we have to visit the doctor and when we do, what will it do to the doctor-patient relationship and perhaps the state of the NHS? I'm joined this week by Ben Maruthapu. Ben used to be the chief advisor on digital issues to the head of NHS England. Today he's a healthcare entrepreneur and the latest person to make the trip to North London and talk to me about what might be just around the corner. Actually, Ben, I'll give
1: you a chance to introduce yourself first. Do you want to tell our listeners who you are and and what you're up to? Sure. My name is Ben Marathapu. I'm a doctor by background. Um, I've got a strong interest in innovation and technology and its use in healthcare, having spent the past three years advising the CEO of the NHS on innovation and now building my own technology company looking to transform social care.
0: One of the things I usually do with our interviewees is ask them to cast their minds back a little bit before we kick off the interview. Um and we're going to be talking about wearable healthcare technology today when you were younger, was it being the doctor or being the entrepreneur that would have held the strongest sway? Would you have picked up the stethoscope or the calculator?
1: Probably the stethoscope actually um I was really passionate and I am really passionate about medicine and its practice. I think I've drifted into the roles that I've had more through uh, serendipity and um, opportunities popping up combined with my overall interest in seeing the direction of travel in healthcare um, as opposed to more planned decisive steps. And how would you characterize that direction of travel that you've seen? I think I've moved more from focusing the on the one-to-one interaction to more of a population uh, focus on healthcare combined with the use of innovation, Uh, particularly innovations that have already transformed other sectors to improve the way in which we deliver health services in this country.
0: And when you were training to be a
1: doctor, did you have a particular moment at which the
0: penny dropped that you wanted to try and do things a bit differently? Or was that always a kind of characteristic?
1: I think it was always uh, a characteristic because even in my early years at medical school, I was setting up small organisations or charities which were looking to um, support people who were from either less privileged backgrounds or who are vulnerable or even from international communities from less developed countries uh, so that they could get access to high quality healthcare services or training. And so I think there was always a bit of a founder in me uh, and that's led me to set up a number of different initiatives over the years. Um, so I think, yes, it's, it's, it's rooted from a number of years back, but that has been blended with my passion for medicine. And so
0: what we do here on this podcast is have a look at innovations in society and have a think about how they're going to affect things in the future, particularly political conversations. And one of the things that I began researching this episode thinking about was that Fitbits were the obvious kind of wearable healthcare technology. But then when I thought about it, I thought Fitbits don't Fitbits are nothing without a phone. A Garmin is nothing without a phone. So Am I right to kind of fix on Fitbits as the best representation of wearable healthcare technology on the the market today, or is it phones?
1: I think what you're hinting at is absolutely right, which is smartphones in particular are probably the device that will revolutionise the way healthcare is approached, delivered, managed. Um, The really neat part about it is that most people in this country have a mobile phone, even globally, the number of mobile phone users goes into the billions. So the second you have an intervention, be it a text messaging platform to remind people when to take their medications or when their appointments are to something more sophisticated like an AI doctor on your phone, that is going to completely change the way we do things. Uh, But
0: it feels to me like there's something quite significant about wearing Mm -hmm. a piece of healthcare technology. I don't know if there's something that people have worn before, but the Having worn a, a kind of very cheap version of a Fitbit at the start of this year, I'm aware of the impacts it can have on your thinking and how you think about how you approach the day or your activity levels or your sleep. So there is something about w- wearing a healthcare device I think that's that's new and different, perhaps
1: Definitely. It's not something that's been around for decades. Um, it is a result of miniaturization combined with uh, real changes in uh, landmarks in technology that have allowed us to now have in some cases even an ECG on your iWatch, right? Before, and even to be honest, in a lot of hospitals at the moment, you need to have multiple leads put across your chest, on your arms, on your legs, if you want a heart reading from an ECG. But there are some devices that zoom that down into just a watch strap, which is unbelievable. And they actually cost cheaper than these other devices. So it's a bit of a no brainer. Um, So because of the ease of use, how cost effective it is and how easy it is to wear, yeah, there is this new movement where people are actually monitoring their own health and managing it more. And this is, I think, it marks a much deeper transformation in healthcare, which is the patient is now going into the driver's seat for healthcare. I mean, we always ask, is the NHS sustainable? How are things gonna be in the future? Demand is increasing year in year, people have more conditions. But one crucial answer to that, which has been in front of our eyes, actually, in recent times, is that people can manage their own conditions, right? They can, through some of these wearables, Fitbits, ophthalmoscopes that attach onto your smartphone, all sorts of bits, they can monitor, even diagnose, and in turn manage these conditions, which is going to completely change the way we do things because the number of visits you need to take to your GP or to your district nurse is going to go way down. So a couple of questions that come from that. One is, will people take responsibility
0: for these conditions? So you know, it's one thing knowing what you should do. There's plenty of things I know I should do and perhaps don't. <laughs> it's another thing actually doing them. So what are, I wonder what our chances of success are in seeing people. You know, they're empowered with knowledge, but does that mean that they take responsibility? Do we know anything about the likelihood of that at the moment?
1: Yeah, and I think. If you just leave people with the information or education by itself, that doesn't tend to be too effective. I mean, people have known that smoking is not good for your health for a number of years now, yet 18% of people in England still smoke. um, And they're aware in most cases of the health risks. So you need much more than just education or the information download to help you change and improve your lifestyle so that you're healthier which is why it's important to work hand in hand with other parts of government and also other parts of society to try and create that movement, be it children who go to school, who if you try and remove from a perimeter around that, junk food um, outlets or kind of fast food outlets, that's gonna reduce the chance that they eat unhealthy food. So yes, they may be getting advice on their smartphone about what they can eat and what's healthier, but we've gotta change the environment and society as well to match that and to make the most of these types of opportunities. And do we know much about what does work? I mean,
0: you've kind of described a sort of subtle nudge in terms of removing the opportunities mm-hmm. to buy junk food. Is, it, it, is the nudge the right way to go? Is there anything we can do that's, that's more carrot or more stick? Is, do we know much about what drives people to take responsibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole load of uh, studies uh, and literature that have covered different types of interventions, everything from financial incentives for women who are pregnant who are smoking to try and get them to stop smoking and those incentives in some cases have worked but then there are other issues that people think about and discuss when it comes to that you know should we be paying people to stop certain lifestyle changes are there other nudges as you pointed to that we should be using instead and there is a wealth of evidence on this we though have to make collective decisions as a society or an electorate as to what we want to back. Recently, the government launched its consultation on the sugar tax or sugar levy. Um, that again, is a kind of nudge which will affect people's intake of high sugar drinks, which do affect people's lifestyle and their obesity rates as well. But that is a type of nudge that does have some evidence behind it, uh, which the government put forward to try and use as an intervention. But again, there are a whole host of others and a wider dialogue and consultations are required to determine which ones we want to back.
0: I think I've probably watched too many versions of The Apprentice and that whenever I hear people talk about the sugar tax, I just imagine an an indignant Alan Sugar getting frustrated. Um, You mentioned as well, though, when talking about responsibility, that when patients are empowered to understand more about the conditions that they have, presumably that's an expectation that we're going to know more than just how many steps we've done or what Mm -hmm. our heart rate is, that we can know a bit more. That will lead to less kind of primary interface between patient and doctor because you won't need to go to the doctors as much. Is that a fact or an assumption at the moment? And what what does the difference between the two rest on?
1: There are some pilots that are underway not just in the UK but internationally where some of the interventions we've been talking about have been helpful in stopping the number or decreasing the number of GP visits and A&E attendances, which in a number of instances are avoidable. People will go with a cough and cold when instead they could see their pharmacist or they could even manage it themselves with over-the-counter and off-the-shelf medicines. So yes, there are pilots which have been successful in demonstrating that. The problem or the challenge is actually spreading what we know already works. I mean, if the health and care system adopted best practice nationwide, we would be in a very different place. We would have much greater efficiency savings than we're delivering at the moment, we'd have higher quality care for less, uh, people would have faster access to the services they need, but because there is this challenge when it comes to spreading innovation, spreading what works, we don't see that picture.
0: How do you characterise the challenge? Because the NHS is a big beast. So why, you know, why don't we have best practice?
1: I'd, I'd like to think we do. There are a number of ways in which we introduce and try and support best practice across the health service. Uh, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, has guidelines in terms of what clinicians should be doing, let's say around prescribing certain drugs or providing certain forms of management clinically. But the reason why it can be difficult to adopt what works um, is complex. Firstly, there are cultural issues. People maybe have trained in one way and then they don't necessarily want to train in another or adopt a new form of practice. Sometimes the evidence base isn't black and white. It's not crystal clear as to whether something is completely beneficial. And then also, we can't always use a one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare. Uh, Because depending on the population and its needs, whether it's an older population, whether it's one with more diabetes, whether it's one with more instances of dementia or mental health conditions, that needs a bit of tailoring, right? And so we have this tension in healthcare where on the one side we're pushing for continuous best practice, consistency. But then on the other side, we want it to be more personalized. We want to focus on the individual, their specific health needs, even down to their genetics, and work out what the right solution is for them. Have you seen best practice catch on in, in, in trying to work on innovation. Sometimes
0: things work when you least expect them to. Has there been a time that you've kind of seen the NHS as an institution respond to an innovation in a, in a way that you didn't expect or at a speed that you didn't expect?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we set up a program called the NHS Innovation Accelerator a few years ago, which focuses on just this spreading tried and tested innovations that, that are in effect, no brainers, everything for an app, which helps people manage their own chest conditions such as COPD, Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disorder, all the way to an ECG which which straps onto a smartphone and helps people monitor their heart rate to see if it's irregular or not. And we saw some really phenomenal results out of this. So in the first six months, the programme benefited 3 million people. After the first year, 400 NHS organisations adopted the innovations on the programme. So there, we saw tremendous uptake, uh, which doesn't, isn't necessarily what usually happens, but I think some of the rationale behind that was we picked innovations that were no-brainers, um, which are very hard to challenge the adoption of. We also tried to match up innovations to the geographies and the populations who would need them the most, which again allows them to be adopted much more quickly because people have a real need for those solutions. And we supported these innovators in understanding, navigating the system and working with it because the NHS, as you said, is large, it's complex. And if you, for example, are, haven't worked inside it, and be it if you're a patient or an entrepreneur or an innovator and you've got something new you want to try out, it can be extremely difficult to f- figure out who do you approach in the first place? Whose door do you go knocking on in a hospital or GP practice? So that na- navigation element was tremendously helpful in supporting best practice adoption and getting innovation spread. So if you had a, an innovative wand to
0: wave in the direction of innovation, and you could target either a particular innovation which you think the uptake isn't as broad as it should be, or you could target an understanding about innovation that doesn't seem to have landed yet. What would you choose if you could just target one?
1: If I could target one, I mean, this is more of a category than a specific innovation, but it would be digitalizing hospital records and, in general, the knowledge base that is across the NHS, um, so that be it patients, healthcare professionals individuals working in hospitals or GP practices or community care centers can access when they need to in real time someone's patient information and just having that at the tip of your fingers when this person comes in front of you with an earache or um, a chesty cough is extremely powerful because it suddenly makes your life so much easier if you are a healthcare professional and figuring out what is actually going on what's happened in the past and therefore how you can treat it going forward and so that availability of information is Extremely powerful and can be unlocked by digital, I believe. What we therefore in turn need to kind of balance that against is cyber security. So, a couple of months ago, we saw the NHS being attacked by the WannaCry malware um, system, and that will cause a tremendous risk. I mean, the health system or certain parts of it did have to stop in its tracks. Operations had to be cancelled, patients couldn't be seen, drugs couldn't be prescribed. That is a big risk. And the more we become digitalized, the more we rely on technology, the more that risk will be emergent. And therefore, we need to balance digital and data with the security wrapper that goes around it to ensure that people's information is rightfully protected.
0: Let's assume that we manage to do all of those things and that people take more responsibility for their own conditions and doctors therefore find it, you know, they've less of an administrative burden and patients interface with GPs less. And then one assumes that there are, there is time and resources freed up within the system. Where should that be spent if we manage to free it up? What should GPs be doing that they're not able to at the moment?
1: (laughs) Well, I think they'd be grateful for any free time they can get um, because the demand is, really outstripping some of the supply when it comes to GP practices and what they can deliver. But I mean, then we can, if we have that luxury of being able to deploy additional teams or people or resource um, to certain conditions or areas of the NHS, I think mental health is something that over the past few decades hasn't received the attention that it deserves. Uh, And part of this is due to stigma. Part of this is due to artificially separating physical and mental health and just focusing on the physical and not treating the patient as a whole. Um, There are a number of reasons but we've got to change that. The government is now starting to take mental health more seriously but we've got a long way to go in terms of what's happening on the front line. Presumably these devices are going to churn out new levels of data
0: that we haven't had before on well-being across the entire population. Does that mean that there are kind of macro level decisions which will be which, which people at the top of the NHS will be more empowered to take about the kind of future big strategic decisions about the future of the NHS?
1: I think the more information and data we have, as long as we can process it and understand it, yes, we'll be in a stronger position to make informed decisions. But on the opposite side, there's analysis paralysis, and we can't figure out what the data's saying, then it may not work in our favour. You're definitely right in saying that there are all these new devices which are churning out new data. The question then comes into play, which is who does the data belong to? And of course, if it's a Fitbit, it rightly belongs to the patient. But I think the channels need to be created such that should a patient want to share it with their family doctor, with the cardiologist that they see in hospital, that should be allowed and it should be seamless so that frontline staff can be empowered to make more astute decisions because in a 10-minute GP appointment, there's only so much you can really do. You can take a history, you can do a quick examination, and you can provide um, a treatment or prescription or make a referral. But if you have months of data that you can just bring up on your screen as well, that allows you to make far better decisions than you would otherwise. A simple example being, let's say, if someone does have an irregular heartbeat that comes on from time to time, if you can have an entire snapshot into what their heartbeat has been like over a few month period and when it's becoming regular and whether that's been associated with them drinking coffee, them exercising or something else or taking a medication, that is extremely valuable information, which otherwise you wouldn't be able to obtain.
0: I'd like to think I was an optimist on the on two things. One, actually, you know, I think data should, if we get data right, the kind of era of data, it needs to be used to empower people. It's sometimes seen as a risk that you give away all this data and the, the man knows about you and you don't know about yourself. But actually, if we get it right. People can deploy their data in quite powerful ways, and I think we've got to get that right. But I'm not that optimistic about the NHS, knowing what I know of bureaucracy, being able to innovate at the speed that technology and the market are going to innovate around this. So to kind of cut to the chase, does that mean that a secondary market in healthcare services in the UK is inevitable because the NHS won't be able to absorb technology fast enough?
1: I think the NHS needs to work hand in hand with some of these technology providers or companies in the same way that we don't make our own drugs. We work with pharma companies to set a good price on certain medications where possible. We need to work with tech companies in a similar way who are bringing out new innovations analogous to new cancer drugs or painkillers and things like that so that, yes, we evaluate them uh, so that we know they're safe, they're worth the money, we can deploy them. But at the same time, we don't hinder the speed at which they're being developed and could be deployed so that we give patients the access to the innovations and technologies that they would like to use. And I think the I mean, what's happening with medications is somewhat similar to what's happening or what could happen with technology.
0: And can you give me some examples of ways in which they, you know there's potential for tech to provide a solution outside of the frameworks of the NHS at the moment that that is a no-brainer or makes a lot of sense?
1: Of course. One example is there is an app which allows people to do CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, which is a treatment for a number of mental health conditions, and it's evidence-based. It's been adopted by a couple of parts of the NHS. It's well-validated, and it's way more cost-effective than doing necessarily a face-to-face equivalent. Creating the function for the NHS to basically prescribe those apps or allow GPs to prescribe that type of app, so if someone needs it, they can get their CBT on their smartphone when they need it without consuming necessarily the time of someone in a face-to-face capacity, that is a no-brainer example of what we could and should be doing. And I think the NHS is moving towards that, but we still have some way to go in creating that infrastructure and ecosystem where staff can, if they need to, prescribe bits of technology as they would medications. And where do the services that CIRA offers, where do they fit
0: within this realm, the kind of NHS market around the NHS Mm -hmm. concentric
1: circles? So we are a social care provider that's tech enabled and social care at the moment is distinct, but alongside the NHS. Uh, There are thousands of care providers up and down the country, most of whom now are really struggling. They're completely offline, they run a pen, paper and fax, and they're having a challenging time in terms of being economically sustainable. So one in three home care companies is currently approaching insolvency. Record numbers of care homes are going bankrupt or going bust. And we believe at Sarah that this is in part due to a lack of use of technology. And we use our digital platform to improve quality, transparency and affordability for the public sector. Um, one of the Big issues between health and social care that's cropped up in recent years has been bed blocking, where patients who are medically fit to be discharged are stuck in hospital because they aren't getting the home care that they need on time in their home, so they can't go home because they're waiting for this package to be delivered. And these home care companies take weeks to organise that, which has a huge knock-on cost to the NHS because you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of people in hospital beds who don't need to be there. Those beds could be occupied by other individuals who need hospital beds or waiting in A&E. And that's in part why we had the A&E crisis over the winter. And also, it's very costly for a hospital to have beds. I mean, it costs between 500 to £1,000 a day. And it's not great for patients who can pick up infections from the people around them. So at Sarah, we provide a tech-enabled solution to this, whereby if a hospital or patient requires home care, we can deliver it within 24 hours guaranteed. So we're working with a number of NHS organizations to do just that. When someone is ready for discharge, they inform us, and we will provide a care worker that's matched to their specific needs on demand, in essence. And we pay our care workers 50% better than other providers. And that's because we use digital to make ourselves more efficient and cut our margins significantly. And that allows them to be really valued because at the moment a lot of care providers pay carers national living wage sometimes even less unfortunately and for the type of work that they're doing i think that's quite a tragic situation and so taking your
0: doctor's hat off for a minute and putting your entrepreneur's hat firmly on how's the
1: regulatory environment for you so we're trying to work with the cqc at the moment to explore how Digital. The CQ. Or, sorry, sorry, Ben, the CQC is a Quali- care quality commission. Exactly. The regulator for health and social care. Exactly. We're working with them to see how tech enabled players should be regulated. But you're right. I mean, they have every care company, every care provider, every hospital and GP practice in the country to regulate. So they're pretty busy. Um, and then on top of that, they have to try and play catch up or keep on, um, on the ball when it comes to new, edgy, innovative players who are trying to do something different or have new models of services and care. So that's a very challenging job to have as a regulator. But that's why I think the CQC, the regulator, need to work hand in hand with some of these more innovative and entrepreneurial providers so that they can say, "Okay, we understand why you're doing that. And in some instances, therefore, we need to amend the way in which we regulate. I mean, one simple example, touching on what we talked about before, is there is now greater cybersecurity risk than obviously there has been in recent years. Care providers who are using tech-based platforms should be perhaps assessed on that risk. And that's something the CQC as the regulator in the sector should consider. Um, Otherwise, we are essentially having large risks that are not being monitored or assessed, uh, which I think isn't ideal. And one of the trends
0: that kind of pops up, we're quite early in this podcast journey, but whenever we're thinking about innovation, there's a kind of utopia that exists if we harness all the benefits of technology, and then there's a kind of dystopia where we fail to, and we don't take advantage of all this opportunity, and nothing really changes. In the case of wearable healthcare and a kind of health technology revolution that seems to be underway, what does the success or otherwise really ride on? And is there a role in your experience for politicians to help determine whether we reach that kind of utopian outcome or the slightly less successful or desirable one?
1: So I think politics and politicians have a significant role here um, because they need to be pointing the direction that the health and care system, which is largely publicly funded in this country, needs to go in. The Department of Health, in the context of health and social care, need to be identifying what they think is best practice, what they think is the right adoption of technology, and what they think also are the right types of innovations that we should be using, in the same way that we pick the right types of medications to be used. There are hundreds of thousands of apps on the App Store, but not all of them are validated, not all of them are safe and helpful. And so I think the public sector, the government, and also uh, some of the national bodies in this space have a role and responsibility when it comes to saying, right, well, these apps are safe. These are the ones that we could and should be using. And in the same way that we have guidelines for clinicians, we should start having guidelines in terms of, okay, well, if someone comes with this condition, these are perhaps some of the apps that you want to be exploring in the same way you'd consider these other types of treatments. So yes, I think politicians do have a significant role in shaping how technology is adopted. And we are reaching a bit of a sink or swim moment, because if the health and care system doesn't adapt and become more agile, there are a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs who frankly say, OK, well, I'm going to explore another country. I'm going to go to German health system, where they have earmarked funding for new innovations. Or I'm going to the United States, where I feel it's going to be way easier for me to get traction. So. Yes, it's a bit of a single swim moment because we don't want to lose all of this homegrown talent and homegrown innovation that we otherwise could really leverage and benefit from. And the NHS is a great position to do that because it is large, it is diverse, it is well integrated across different parts of the system. And those are all extremely attractive features for innovators and innovations. And you advise the chief executive of NHS England, who is a man who has to deal
0: with politicians on a regular basis. I am a big believer in the power of politics to be a force for good. I don't think it's something that gets in the way I think done well, it can transform and does transform society and people's lives. And I'm not in the business of getting people to name and shame, but where have you seen politicians have particularly impactful input
1: that's driven desirable outcomes in a way that you would applaud? And and how do you think they've achieved that? So I think even the current health secretary, Jeremy Hunt has really tried to champion digital he's pushed forward the agenda, although it's been hard to implement, and we haven't necessarily stuck to the timelines we've intended for. He's continuing to persist, which is the right approach to technology. We need to try and make it work in the same way that uh, entrepreneurs try and crack different problems and find innovative solutions. At the government level, we need to crack how to make technologies adopted far and wide across the system. And I think the approach on continuously pushing the digital agenda is the right one. We've also seen politicians in the Department of Health and outside seek advice from experts internationally when it comes to new tech and innovation, which again, I think is the right approach. We shouldn't wall ourselves off to what's happening elsewhere, to some of the best practice internationally. We need to try and curate all of the lessons learned that have happened elsewhere, so we don't end up reinventing the wheel or making the same mistakes that other people have made. And in a hypothetical
0: world in 2021, there's a new Secretary of State for Health, They're not from any political party. They've won a huge majority. They can get away with the biggest reforms we've seen in healthcare in this country in the last generation. What's the bravest thing they
1: could do in that position? I think there is scope for significant reform in social care. And I think we recently heard about some of this in the election, uh, which the media critiqued in some respects and people had controversial discussions about. But I think we do need some bold steps there, because social care funding has decreased by something like 45% since 2010 or the economic crisis, because cash hasn't been available as it used to be. And that has had a tremendous knock-on effect on providers far and wide. And we saw very recently Michael Marmot talking about how life expectancy is now cooling off. It's not increasing as it used to year on year. And he argued that that's in part due to some of the social care constraints that are occurring. There was another study that recently identified that a couple of years ago, there were up to 30,000 excess deaths due to social care funding constraints. And I think, yes, we have an ageing population. We have one with more long-term conditions. Social care, unlike the NHS, isn't 100% publicly funded. But we need to think about what the right funding model is and the right delivery model is uh, looking forward, because this is an issue that is not going to go away. It's only going to increase in size. So looping back around, and this is my last question. One of the things that I, I like to do
0: for the benefit of the listeners to this podcast really is to ask people who've seen reforms get taken up or they've seen success within politics and they've seen change. And, you know, you refer to constantly setting things up when you were training as a doctor and making change happen. When you think about making change happen, how do you think it happens? What what characteristics of the most successful people you've worked with displayed?
1: So I think the first step is, of course, identifying the problem and The NHS um, has come a tremendously long way, but still has plenty of opportunities for improvement. It's about picking the right opportunity based on timing, political climate, um, what other stakeholders are thinking, feasibility. Is there a solution that's readily available that we could fire up and implement? Picking the right problem is the first step. The next is really corralling all of the right people who will have a say in uh, determining whether this interventional solution is going to um, progress or not. And this is where it does become political. It does become m- much more diplomacy related. And so that is a tremendous skill in itself, getting the goodwill, getting the backing uh, of every, all the relevant stakeholders. And then the other quite different skill set is implementation. And implementation is very different from the last, from the previous two. It's much more operational, rolling up the sleeves. How do we actually do this on the ground? What does some staff need to be doing differently? Where do we start? What do we do next? How do we monitor it? If there are issues, how do we deal with it? Uh, And I think with implementation, yes, you need experience. But also, I think you need tremendous resilience because you've got to keep going. Innovation and transformation in the public sector can be tricky, especially when there are a limited number of pounds to go around. But therefore, it requires a lot of resilience. You've got to keep knocking on doors. You've got to keep going. You can't give up. Ben, thank you very much for coming all the way to this
0: uh, industrial quarter of North London and chatting with me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. So that's all for this week, except one more little known fact, which is that Secretary of State for Health Jeremy Hunt is a Fitbit wearer. Thanks to Cecilia Armstrong for her help producing and editing this week's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, as ever, like us or share us or tell your friends about us. You can find us on social media at Government vs. The Robots. That's at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. Facebook, Government vs. The Robots. Or find me on Twitter at Tanner JC. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.